1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, uh, it is in your light that we see light. It is your word alone uh, that uh, shines to show us ourselves, to show us our sin, uh, to show us uh, the true path in which we're to walk and to show us our Saviour. And so we pray now that you would pour your spirit upon us to show us by the light of your word uh, how we might live lives that please you and honour Christ. I do that for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just occasionally when you sit down to prepare sermons, you come across passages uh, that are of great interest to you, but you fear may not be so much for others. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, I may be doing you a disservice, but in 1 Timothy 4, that was slightly my fear in preparation. Uh, the first five verses describe a particular false teaching that my guess is none of us have ever experienced. Have you ever sat in a church service or gone to a Christian conference or a CU meeting and heard the preacher stand up and say, you must not get married. Marriage is forbidden by God. My guess is no. Have you ever been in a church service or Christian union meeting or Christian conference where, verse 3, a teacher has stood up and said, look, we all want to be godly. So no carrots, no broccoli, no chocolate, no biscuits. Giving you a list of the, the kind of foods you can eat and the kind of foods you can't eat. Again, my hunch is, no, I certainly haven't. So in verses 1 to 5, we have a description of a, a heresy that Paul describes as very serious. And see where it comes from? 
It comes from these teachers who are corrupted by deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. He doesn't say it's a small thing. It's not a light thing. No, it is ultimately demonic. It comes from the, the pit of hell, says Paul. And yet it's likely to be one that, at first glance at least, we, we've just never come across. And then in verse 6 through uh, 16, what do we get? We get essentially a CV, a job description for Timothy, the minister of this church in Ephesus. This is how he is to act. That means that every single command between verse 6 and 16 is given primarily to ministers or elders or overseers or bishops or whatever you want to call them. Different Bible uses different words at different times, rather than directly to every single Christian. So you can see why in preparation you might fear, or I might have feared, that this is going to be a hard work morning. But I hope, I hope, that as we go on, we'll see both that the heresy that Paul describes is in fact incredibly modern and is all around us at the moment. And therefore the significance of Paul's response in verses 6 through 16. It might be just worth beginning by turning to the last verse of the letter. If you flick over the page to chapter 6, and verse, well, verse 20. This letter is written by Paul the Apostle to Timothy, who is uh, a young minister. You might have noticed in the reading, Paul said, let no one despise you because of your youth. Now, he's not, he's not a teenager. Uh, youth, in the Bible's terms, in those days, young men, went up to about the age of 40. Okay? So Timothy could well be in his 30s, uh, which still makes him very much a young man. Uh, you're still not even close to middle-aged in your late 30s. Um, so either way, he's a youngish man. And this is a personal letter to him. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. It's very personal. Timothy, please hold to these things. Okay, all I've written to you, please hold on. It, it's, 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 it's the older man, Paul, to the younger man, Timothy. This is so important. Paul is on his way out. He knows he's not going to be around forever. Please, Timothy, hold on to this stuff. It's deeply personal. But the last line, grace be with you. The you there is not referring to Timothy, at least not just Timothy. Uh, if you've got the ESV in, on your lap, you'll see there's a little footnote, number one, and they bother to tell us the Greek for you is plural. Greek's one of those languages where you have a different word if it's you just meaning one person or you meaning lots of you. And this is the lots of you word. Uh, what that tells us is that, if you like, Paul expects Timothy to be, to be reading the, the letter like this. Okay? Timothy is the pastor, he's reading it, but the congregation are reading it over his shoulder. Okay? They are there listening with him. So although lots of the commands are specific to him, they're not only for him. It is not only Timothy who's meant to understand, for example, what a minister does and why they do it. It is the whole church who, over Timothy's shoulder, are meant to be hearing what Paul is instructing. And that, in a sense, is another way of saying what Paul says in his next letter to Timothy, which is all scripture is God-breathed and is therefore uh, useful for the church. So let's dive in uh, and look, first of all, at verses 1 to 5 and try and just work out what is the problem. Okay, what is this heresy? What's gone wrong in the church? There are these false teachers. As the Spirit predicted, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. 
this false teaching shouldn't have surprised Timothy. The Spirit said it was going to happen. Now, Paul doesn't say quite where the Holy Spirit said this. Uh, It's possible uh, that Paul's referring to the last time he was in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is now. He was on the beach, he gathered all the elders together, and Paul said that there are going to be men who arise from within your own number. And he's talking to the elders, the church leaders, not the church at at large, but the elders. And he looks at them, no idea how many, but the gathered elders of the church in Ephesians, he looks them in the eyes and says, within your number, false teachers will rise up. He calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. That's where that phrase comes from. It is among the, the, the ministers, the elders, that this deceitful, demonic, false teaching will arise, says Paul. So it's perhaps not a surprise that a number of years later, when Paul writes to this congregation and to Timothy, their minister, uh, he writes to warn them of some false teaching that has arisen. Uh, And it's serious. It's serious. It's as if all the kind of the forces against the gospel come together. In verse 1, there's demons and deceitful spirits. But in verse 2, it's not as if these men who are preaching it are entirely innocent. They are lying. It's almost as if at some level they know what they're saying isn't true, but they're still preaching it, perhaps for their own personal gain. At some level, it seems to be Paul is saying that even false teachers know that they are teaching falsely. And yet they keep going. Why? Well, verse 2, their consciences are seared. If you get a really hot, imagine getting a really hot iron and and branding it onto the, to, to, your, to your skin. Afterwards, the, the skin would lose all feeling, wouldn't it? You can't, you can't feel anything more, no more sort of pain. Or th- That's what's happened to these guys' consciences. Okay? That they've so given themselves to deceiving other people willfully that, that, that their conscience has lost all its sensitivity. And what is it they're teaching? What is it they're teaching? They've wandered away from, from teaching the true faith, verse 1, now, it might be worth saying there, it's not that these guys were genuine Christians. Okay, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that it's not possible to be born again and then walk away from the faith. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us to life, and if the Holy Spirit brings us to life, he will keep us alive. Okay, the Holy Spirit never dumps people. Okay, he, he, he's not the kind of, he doesn't break off relationships. Once he brings you into the kingdom, you will stay in the kingdom. Now, what's going on here is what John says in, in his letter, which is some people will go out from us even though they never actually belonged to us. They looked like true believers. These guys were even appointed elders. But behind the scenes, it seemed they never were. So so they've left the true faith that they once professed with their mouths, even though they didn't believe in their hearts. And what do they teach? Verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. How strange. You can't get married and some food is off limits. What's going on? And is this just some utterly weird heresy that arose in Ephesus and has never been seen again? Well, let's just do a little bit more digging. As you read those first four or five verses, Paul is conjuring up a particular scene. There is a particular Bible episode, if you like, that these teachers are rejecting. Did you sort of sense what it was? Just the illusions? They're forbidding marriage. Where was marriage first given? They're, they're, they're saying that certain food isn't good. Where was food first declared good? Verse 3, they forbid foods that God created. Verse 4, everything created by God is good. Paul is conjuring up 
Genesis 2 and the, the Garden of Eden. Uh, time and again in Genesis 1, as God makes the world, he, he makes something and says, it is good. Remember, every day of creation, God saw it and it was good. Uh, but these guys are coming along and saying, no, there's a bunch of stuff that God created that is, in fact, not good. Marriage and particular foods. Uh, their creed, if you like, if, you want, if they wanted a slogan, uh, if they produced banners, uh, Christchurch Ephesus, what would they put on their, their banners? It'd be something like, get rid of the garden. Okay, the Garden of Eden, get rid of the garden. The gifts that were given in the Garden of Eden are not good for these teachers. And actually, we, we know that this has been a recurring problem in the church in the days of the New Testament and as church history goes onwards. There have always been those who look at the Old Testament and sneer. Uh, particularly those who, who look at the Old Testament and say, look, the Old Testament is just earthly and physical. But, but in the New Testament age, the age where God has poured out his spirit, what really matters is the soul and the spirit. The body is just a hindrance. It's a sort of weight dragging you down. If you like, imagine a man in a suit of armour. The real living being is on the inside and, and the, the suit of armour just, just, just slows you down, makes you clunky. Well, that's like us as human beings. The real you is your soul, your spirit, your body. It's just a weight. It's just an encumbrance. It's just in the way. It's not a good thing. Soul and spirit are good. Creation is bad. Uh, they prioritise, if you like, the spiritual over the physical. And they also, therefore, prioritise the secret over the public. Uh, what does that mean? What do I mean by that? Well, if someone was to stand up today and say, look, bodies are bad, marriage is bad, food is bad. Just say someone, did, you know, we've got a guest preacher in and they went rogue and they started saying that. The first thing that most of you would say, knowing your Bible, is this, well, just a minute, Genesis says it's good. Okay, so, so these false teachers have to have an answer to that. Have to have an answer to the person who says, whoa, whoa, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, marriage is good, food is good, bodies are good. What is the answer that these kind of false teachers give? Well, they have secret knowledge. Obviously not biblical knowledge. But typically they would claim to have other revelation, extra knowledge that's not available to the, the general public, the ordinary Christian. But it's only available to them the super teachers. That's probably what's going on in verse 7 when Paul says, have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths. We've already heard earlier in 1 Timothy that there are bizarre myths that the false teachers have cooked up. Now, Paul says never, never quite says exactly what they are, but they're silly and, and, and myths by, by their very nature are kind of you know, secrets that are passed on. Perhaps they claim that some angel has revealed stuff to them, uh, that, that, a, that a higher teacher has passed it on to them. Who knows? But, but these false teachers, uh, we read about not just in Timothy, but other New Testament letters, and we certainly read about in, in the early church, as we read the experiences of early Christians in the, in the days just after the New Testament, that these false teachers uh, lived by this creed, get rid of the garden, the physical is bad, the spiritual is good. And also, if you like, by the, by the, uh, the approach knowledge that, that those in the know agree with us. Whereas everyday Christians who are just trusting the Bible uh, are still in the dark. There is elite knowledge, secret knowledge, extra knowledge you need to know to really understand what God wants for you. Uh, they were called, by the way, Gnostics. You might have heard this phrase uh, thrown around. Gnostic just means knowledge. 
the knowledgeable ones, because the teachers presented themselves as the ones who had secret knowledge. Secret knowledge that Paul dismisses as irreverent, silly myths. Now, so, so where do we see it today? I'm getting that, Timothy can sort out Ephesus, but, but where do we see this today? Given that probably you've never been told not to marry or not to eat certain foods. Uh, we see it, first of all, I would suggest to you in tendencies. Okay? This is a sort of gentle application. We see it in the tendency, even within some strands of evangelicalism, to just slightly see some of God's gifts in the garden as second best. Let me give you an example a particular uh, network that I was involved with, summer camps, uh, and still involved with. Done loads and loads of good work, thoroughly evangelical, Bible-believing, and all the rest of it. Um, for a good while, at least when I was a younger man, an even younger man, <laughs> just slightly gave the impression that marriage was second best. So when I was at theological college, uh, the guy who at the time was running the, the, this work came to visit me it's before I was married. And he was chatting, you know, how's college going? You know, you stuck into church life. How are you doing as a Christian? And then he asked me, you know, are you, are you seeing anyone? Are you going out with anyone? And I said, well, no. And he said, well done. <laughs> and I didn't tell him that it wasn't for lack of trying. <laughs> it was just, um, but it, the reason, the reason he said well done was he, he was just it, sort of hedging or edging towards, sorry, the idea that, well, marriage is, he would never have said it's forbidden. But it's not the best. Ideally, you stay single. Uh, running off Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll look at another time. But it was just beginning to see a gift of God, marriage as something that is, well, tolerated, not sinful, but a bit of a necessary evil. It is not a necessary evil. Children are not a necessary evil. Family is not a necessary evil. They are gifts of God in creation. So there are tendencies that grow up in the church from time to time that just seem to disparage some of the good gifts that God has given. I wonder sometimes, even if family is one of those things, um, uh, even again within evangelicalism, uh, the idea of having children or, or having children that in, by the, I don't know, the number you have or whatever means that, that you're not as free as you might be. It's just seen as a bit of encumbrance. I don't want children to, you know mean that I have to have less nice holidays or uh, I don't want the number of children I have to mean that I, I have a less nice lifestyle and they just begin to be seen as a bit of a negative rather than as a blessing. So be careful of the tendencies that could just grow up even if they're not as extreme as the false teaching of 1 Timothy 4. But there are the extremes too. There are those who walk very much hand in hand with the teachers in Ephesus. We've seen that all the way through church history. Uh, you might, I don't know if it happened this year, but almost every Easter and Christmas uh, in the press or on TV, uh, you get uh, an article or a program that's got some title like um, you know, re, re, Rediscovering Jesus or The True Jesus or The Lost Message of Jesus. Or, and every, honestly, it happens every single year. And it's the same thing. Someone will dig up uh, one of the Gospels written by these Gnostic teachers and claim that this presents the real Jesus. So you hear about the Gospel of Barnabas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter. Now, all these documents were, were written way later than the Bible. But they, they don't mention that. All these Gospels were written by people who had never met Jesus. They were also written by people who self-consciously were 
claiming to be making it up. They weren't claiming that they were writing about the historic Jesus. If you'd said to one of the authors of one of these Gospels, oh, so this is what Jesus really said and did, they'd say, no, no, no. The whole point of this is it's a revelation that I'm making up. Okay? They were never claiming to be historical accounts, but they make great headlines. If you want to sort of say, hey, you know, the Gospels you've got in the Bible, you silly little Christians, are just four from the millions that actually were around. Um, historically, nonsense, but a cracking headline. Let me read just, just one of them. This is the Gospel of, the Gospel of Thomas, nothing to do with the Thomas the Disciple. And just hear how this writer, whoever he was, we don't know his name, definitely wasn't Thomas, undermines the garden. He's trying to get rid of the garden because of his secret knowledge. So Jesus said to them, the disciples, when you make the two into one and the inner like the outer and the outer like the inner and the upper like the lower. Okay, it sounds like a bad Beatles song, doesn't it? Sort of hippie, you know, Eastern mysticism. And when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male will not be male, nor the female female, then you will enter the kingdom, the kingdom of God. When you make male like female and female like male, so there's no longer male or female, then you'll enter the kingdom of God. What is the Gospel of Thomas trying to do? Get rid of gender distinctions. We're 100, maybe 200 years after Christ. Undermining male and female is given in Eden. You can go on a few hundred years, you can read about uh, groups that grew up in, in Europe even, in the, in the Middle Ages, a group called the Cathars, the pure ones, who, who very explicitly said, look, if you're going to be part of our true Christian sect, you're not allowed to sleep with your wife, there's no marriage, there's no sex, no having children, they banned certain foods. Uh, you weren't allowed to eat eggs or cheese because they're associated with reproduction. That's how to live a life truly pleasing to God. I think of certain denominations, Roman Catholicism to this day, ministers, priests as they call them, aren't allowed to marry. Let's remain, remain celibate. So we'd be silly to think that this sort of teaching will never come back. Sometimes we just need warning about certain false teachings that even if we can't see them absolutely straight in our face today, they need to be on our list of things to keep an eye open for. But actually they are around even more explicitly, I suggest. Not in those today who, who, who ban marriage and ban certain foods. In many ways we live in a uh, a sort of profligate culture, don't we, that just wants to say, eat everything you want, sleep with who you want. But there are those, even those who claim to be within the church, who claim actually to be evangelical, who are preaching this creed of get rid of the garden because they've got secret knowledge. They are those in the know. It's not actually food, not often, but think about other gifts given in the garden. I think about well, think about gender. God made us male and female. As a particular, I don't know if he's still, for one time he would have been the most famous um, evangelical minister in England. I don't know if that's still the case. Steve Chalk, Baptist minister down in London. Uh, he's written recently on the whole gender issue. Uh, he quotes approvingly uh, Chaz Bono, who is Sonny and Cher's son, daughter, transitioned uh, gender from a girl to now claim to be a man. Charles Bono says this, gender is about what's between your ears, not your legs. And Steve Chalk quotes this appro approvingly. Gender is about what's between your ears, not your legs. I.e., the real you is what you feel like. Thanks to with biology and the body and the physical. It's just about what you feel like. That is the essence of the transgender mo movement. We're going to think about it in a couple of weeks in Sunday school. But, but, but it's preaching the same message as these guys. Doesn't matter about the body, creation, the way you're made. It's about what you feel. 
on the inside. That is the real you. And what's amazing is this is a guy who is claiming, still claiming to be an evangelical, who is preaching that approvingly. So you come back to him and say, as many people have done, but Steve Chalk, the Bible says, dot, 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 and go to Genesis 2. We've got an answer. Uh, talk about Paul's teaching on male and female. Paul has been misunderstood, says Chalk, badly misunderstood. I believe that all too often his words have been borrowed, lifted out of context, twisted, sometimes stood on their heads, and then drummed into the service of ideas and policies, doctrines and behaviours which not only would he never have owned, but he would have hated. Rather than forcing our preconceived cultural assumptions back onto this extraordinary first century pioneer, that's Paul, our task is to try to listen as hard as we can to the meaning of his words in terms of their original context and culture. When we do this, we discover that far from being the great excluder, Paul is in fact the great includer. Now, what's he saying there? Did you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, look, if you just, if you silly Christians, if you silly, silly little Christians who are just reading your Bible and simplistically deriving from it that uh, we're made male and female, if you actually understood first century culture, if you could read Greek, which is the language that the New Testament is written in, you would understand that that's not at all what Paul meant, that we should hold to our gender roles, male and female. So, for example, in 1 Timothy, one of the passages that, uh, 2, 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says that elders, ministers in the church should be male. No, 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 says Steve Chalk. You've misunderstood him if that's what you think he's saying. If you understood the cult he was writing to, the language he was using, you would know that's not really what he meant. And actually, Paul is the great includer, as if Paul was the champion of the, I don't know, LGBTQ movement or whatever it might be. You need the secret knowledge that only he has. Now, it's nonsense, of course. Part of the way you know it's nonsense is that Christians in the the centuries just after this is written, Christians who spoke Greek and lived in the Roman culture are constantly writing about the fact that, for example, marriage is meant to be male-female, that gender is male-female. You'd expect them to understand their own language and their own culture better than Steve Chalk 2,000 years later. But the same patterns, do you see, are at work. Get rid of the garden, deny these gifts given to us by God in creation because of the special secret knowledge we've got. In Chalk's case, it's sort of intellectualism. You will hear the Bible undermined. The Bible's pretty clear teaching, undermined constantly by those who claim to have more knowledge than you. And disturbingly, it is from those who claim to be, at times, evangelical Christians. They are the heirs of one Timothy 4, get rid of the garden because we have the secret knowledge. Uh, what is Paul's response? I'm going to have to be much more quick, at this, quickly on, quick on this. rather. Uh, first of all, verse, four, uh, verse 3 and 4, actually you're meant to receive everything God has made with thanksgiving. Every gift in creation is a good gift. So part of your spirituality, part of your growth as a Christian is to receive the many good gifts God gives us as gifts. Uh, Everything God made is good, and therefore, don't reject it, says Paul in verse 4, if it's made holy. Sorry, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, that's not talking about some weird ritual you have to do to make your food holy or um, your marriage holy, as if you've got to read a bit of the Bible before you eat or something. The word of God Paul's talking about there, most likely, is the word of God in Genesis 1, that it is good that he pronounces over creation after day one, two, three, four, five, six. It is good. That is the word of God that has said 
everything I made is good. And so we receive it with thanksgiving. There's a reason why traditionally Christians uh, say grace before meals. But really we could say grace before everything. G.K. Chesterton, who's a Catholic writer, but often has some great insights, says this. You say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera. And grace before the play and the pantomime. Grace before I open a book. Grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. All of life is a gift, says Chesterton. Say, say grace before all of it. You might not be the opera goer. Say grace before you go to the Avengers. Thank you for this you know, experience. Uh, grace before you fence or dance or box, whatever it is you might do. Uh, God is given us this world to enjoy. Christians are meant to be people who who celebrate creation rather than try and escape it into a sort of super spirituality. All creation is good. Now, not all culture is good, it's worth saying. Creation is what God makes. Culture is what we make with God's creation. So sometimes we take God's good creation and use it in harmful ways. There are clearly, for example, films that are not good. But God didn't make those films. He might have made the things that go into making the film, but we take the good stuff he made and corrupt it for our own ends. But everything God makes is good. So don't fuss too much about what you eat. Am I eating the right foods or not the right foods? The world is full of books telling you, do eat this, don't eat that, all the rest of it. Now, physical training is good, as Paul says, verse 7. It's not that we're meant to indulge and be greedy, but we can obsess about what kind of foods, you know, everything gives you cancer nowadays, doesn't it? Every, every time you open the paper, something else is about to give you cancer. Don't fuss too much. Be sensible. You don't neglect science, certainly, because that's the study of creation. But don't panic too much. Rejoice in the gifts God has given you. And ultimately, the thing that's going to help you do that most is, well... Uh, through the true ministry of the gospel. I'm going to be really brief here, and I'm aware I'm doing no justice uh, to 10 whole verses, really, uh, of this letter, verses 6 through 16. But it's the true ministry of the gospel that enable us, enables us to stay safe from these false teachers. Timothy is told, essentially, to, be, to do two things. Uh, he's to be godly, and he's to teach the Bible. To be godly and teach the Bible. Godliness is, is the first big theme of those verses. Uh, verse 7 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. Uh, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Verse 16. Uh, keep a close watch on yourself, literally your life, and on the teaching. Uh, it's hard work. Verse, uh, excuse, verse 10. For this end, we toil and strive. Paul says we work really hard for godliness. Holiness doesn't come easily, does it? If you're just expecting God to make you holy, if you're not actively trying to walk with the Spirit to make you holy, it's, it's not going to happen, says Paul. It's hard work. You should be striving, battling against sin. But it's worth it because we're going towards the hope of heaven that God has put out for us. It might be worth saying in verse 10, when God is described as the saviour of all people, especially those who believe, that's not Paul saying everybody's going to go to heaven. He's very clear elsewhere that's not the case. But God is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe, in the sense that, his, if you like, his title is that of saviour. He is the God who saves. Now, not everyone will, will, will receive that salvation. Some people will turn their back on him. But it's a bit like in, in the olden days when you had a village doctor, Okay, imagine you lived in a village and was the village doctor. That doctor was the doctor of all people in the village of Swindermere. 
Now, not everyone might go to the doctor. Some people might ignore him. But he's still the village doctor, the doctor of all the citizens of Swindaby. In that sense, God is the saviour of all people, uh, even if in the end not everyone ends up saved. Uh, in short, what Paul is saying here is summarised, I think, really well by a Scottish minister, uh, Murray McShane, who said this, my people's greatest need is my holiness. That is what you need in your elders, ultimately, holiness. It's not an easy thing to preach, as you might imagine. It's a very terrifying thing to preach. I read once of a, a guy at the French court back in the, in the 18th century who said to one of the preachers who was a, a, a preacher to the king, he said, sir, your sermons terrify me, but your life reassures me. Can you imagine how chilling that would be to hear as a minister? Your sermons terrify me, but your life reassures me. It's not really serious, is it? Godliness is Timothy's first great burden. And then secondly, teaching the Bible. Verse 6, put these things before the brothers, as in teach them. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Read the Bible publicly. That, by the way, is why um, here at Christchurch, we we get whoever's preaching to do the reading rather than just having a, a rotor. The reading is part of the ministry of the word too. So it makes sense that the person who's prepared the sermon that week then reads it because they're the one who understand it. There's interpretation even in the reading. It's part of the minister's job. Uh, Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Uh, Ministers are often called to all all sorts of things, asked to do all sorts of things. But ultimately, what you want, if you're going to be kept walking in the true faith, is a minister who gives himself to godliness and teaching the Bible. Uh, So important is this, that Paul, verse 16 is extraordinary. Did it shock you? Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, you are going to be the saviour of the people in Ephesus. Paul, what? Imagine if I stood up this morning and said, um, welcome to church this morning. My name is John T. Rhodes. Uh, I'm the saviour uh, of Christchurch Central. Okay, you would have been out the door like a flash, wouldn't you? Who do you think he is? But Paul uses that language. Uh, Jesus actually uses that language elsewhere. He talks about sending Paul in Acts 26. I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes. No, Jesus, you open the eyes. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Don't be so arrogant, Paul. It's not you saving, it's Jesus who saves. What do you mean, I might save some? What is Paul the Apostle speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now we know he is not saying that ultimately it is any minister or preacher or even apostle who who earns salvation. That is done by Christ's death on the cross in our place. But the means that God uses to get that good news to people and to keep them walking in that path is 99 times out of 100 that the the preaching, the teaching of God's word. Okay, he can do what he wants if he wants to. He could click his fingers and do something out of the ordinary. But the ordinary means is that. That's why even the great reformers, those who were standing up against the Catholic Church with this idea that the priests were the intermediaries. You couldn't go to God directly. You had to go through the priest. He would forgive your sins. And Even men like Calvin and Luther were able to say things like this. Luther, it's an excellent thing that every honest pastor and preacher's mouth is Christ's mouth. As you hear your pastor preach, if he's preaching the Bible, you are hearing Christ preach, says Luther. Calvin, when a man has climbed up into the pulpit, 
okay, or wandered behind the music stand. It is so that God may speak to us. This is the normal way God feeds his people. That's why he uses such huge language in verse 16. Uh, that is why ministry is so significant. There are comforts for Timothy, comforts for all of us. Verse 14, uh, there's the comfort of, of what essentially is being described there, which is ordination. He's being set aside for office. He's been called. Uh, the council of elders, that is li- the literal word there is the presbytery. Okay, if you wonder why we call ourselves presbyterians, it's literally the presbytery. The group of elders have laid their hands on him. That happens to any... Uh, if you're going to become an elder in, in, in the IPC, the, the elders, the council of elders, the presbytery will come and lay on hands and pray for you. It's not magical, but it's ordination, setting this apart, person apart to be an elder. Uh, you don't just take this ministry on yourself, decide, yep, this is for me. And also verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. No one is the finished article. Please hear that verse. Yeah. May see your progress, not your perfection. But this is, this is important, not just for me, although it is uh, chillingly significant for me and for any others of you who might end up in ministry. This is important for all of us. It's important so that we pick the right men to join this ministry. It's important because uh, we must pray for those who exercise this ministry. Please pray for me and for anyone else who's called in uh, to service in this sense at Christ Church Central, because it is of massive significance to your spiritual health. After your spouse, no one will have more impact on your spiritual life than the various pastors and ministers you sit under for however many days the Lord gives you. Okay, it, it's hard to preach because you, you, you don't want to sound pompous and we're English and we're self, you know, but they will have a massive effect on you. And please hold, hold me and others to this account and no, and no other. This is what we're meant to be doing. There's much else that can go on in church life. But this is the primary thing. Live a godly life and devote yourself to the teaching in particular. By so doing, our prayer is that God saves us, keeps us walking until we're safely home. And ultimately brings many others in as well. It is a, it is a humbling passage. <laughs> Uh, it's a significant passage in Paul's letter. And it's a tremendously important passage if we're going to build the kind of church that will resist these false teachers, not give in to the pressure around us from outside in the world or the false teaching that creeps in within. But whatever do- God does with Christ's essential, whether he, we're 18 months old, whether in the next 18 months we double in size or shrink by half, the call is faithfulness above all else, faithfulness to the Christ who gave his life uh, for us and to win us eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great gifts you've given us, our bodies, the gifts of marriage, the gifts of food, uh, the gifts of gender. We pray that uh, all these good gifts we would receive with thanksgiving and and live out uh, lives that are full of gratitude to you uh, because of your goodness to us. Father, keep us walking on that true path. Raise up uh, men for ministry, we pray. Uh, Protect us as a church from false teaching, not just in this generation, but the next. And Father, would you truly become the saviour of all in Leeds? Would many flock to hear Christ and his gospel? And would you open the eyes of all? We ask these things in his name. Amen.